0: The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 80, The Volcanic Winter of 536. During Volume 3 we spoke of the Mesoamerican culture based at the ancient city of Teotihuacan and how during the 6th century this once great city, at one time the greatest in the Americas, dwindled away into insignificance, leaving behind its great pyramids. One of the reasons put forward for its demise is the theory of the late antique Little Ice Age. The late antique Little Ice Age is an evident cooling of global temperatures that occurred during the 6th century. There is evidence of strange climatic weather behaviours recorded during this period but nobody seems to be able to pinpoint exactly why this took place. There are some strong opinions about a sequence of events within the scientific communities and the purpose of this episode is to discuss those theories and opinions in a bid to try to uncover the truth. The intrigue is based around the writings of contemporaries who mention a persistent dark cloud in the skies around this time. And not many historians were able to connect these writings to the cause of just one event until it was suggested that a volcanic eruption took place in around the year 536. It was at this point that historians started suggesting that these widespread contemporary writers may have been talking about the consequences of one particular and catastrophic volcanic eruption that caused a volcanic winter experienced by many different nations and that the mentions of dark clouds by different writers was in fact writers referring to the same specific and related phenomenon. Dendrochronology Studies of climate change can be investigated in a number of ways, with some sciences being more reliable than others depending on the specific circumstances but also there are some sciences that can throw out questionable results based on factors not accounted for. So it can be easy to blame an event for an anomaly without considering all of the possible events as factors. The question mark over the precise date of the extinction of the Neanderthals is a good example, where carbon dating may be deceptive Due to other factors affecting the amounts of carbon detected and subsequently giving us a bad result. Dendrochronology is a form of climatic dating based on the growth of trees, but we have to be open minded about the results of studying tree growth and whether a sudden climatic change dated to around 536 is definitely the result of a volcanic eruption or whether it is just simply a standard change of climate that has had a similar effect on tree growth to other climate changes not related to volcanic activity. Every scientific reference that we talk about during this episode is not a direct evidence of a volcanic eruption, but may be suggestive of one. So we always have to be hesitant to draw conclusions. Most of us are not scientists and have no expert knowledge of dendrochronology and so we are in no position to make categorical assumptions. That doesn't mean that we cannot look into the results of dendrochronology and make suggestions based on the results of the study. So what does dendrochronology tell us about the year five? Thirty-six. In the latter half of the 530s there is definite evidence of a low point in the growth rate of particular trees of northern America and northern Europe. There also appears to be an unusual recording of frost rings within particular trees of Mongolia and Siberia during this period which may be indicative of volcanic activity. The counterbalance of this is that the weakening growth rate of some of these trees is a continuing trend, continuing from back in the 520s. So this may suggest that there were bad climate conditions towards the end of the 530s, but it may have been the result of a deterioration that had already been taking place. There is good evidence of the possibility of volcanic activity, but it is by no means categorical. In general, the years in and around 540 demonstrate a low point in tree growth. The low point is comparable to the years 1600 and 1816. In 1600, a global volcanic winter was experienced after the eruption of Huayna in the modern country of Peru. And in 1816, a global volcanic winter was experienced after the eruption of Mount Tambora in the modern country of Indonesia. Ice Core Study Right the way back in Volume 1 we discussed how the study of ice cores can give us a deep understanding about the history of global climates stretching back millions of years. So can we use ice cores to investigate the suspected worst year in history, 536? Greenlandic ice core studies rely on scientists to have an understanding of what they should expect to see in the ice cores after a volcanic eruption. So scientists measure specific sulphate levels in the ice cores following events such as the Mount Tambora eruption in 1815 and then look for similarities that may point us towards an event around the year 536. Scientists have discovered a significant rise in sulphate levels in the year 534, which on the face of it might seem evidently incorrect. However, it is not correct to assume that these readings are completely accurate. There is the consideration that all of the Greenlandic ice core readings allow for a two or three year deviance and in this case it would be reasonable to suggest that the sulphate readings could actually be in reference to the year 536. Some of the deviations in dating can also be supported by the comparison of some other sulphate deposits and the suspected connected events also that seem to have a similar difference. And it is also comparable to the records held within the Antarctic ice cores, also with consideration to their dating discrepancies. So there is a good suggestion within the ice cores, that an event such as a volcanic eruption is suspected to have happened around the year 536 and this can support the discoveries of the dendrochronologists. Contemporary and Retrospective Accounts By the 6th century, the Western Roman Empire had come under the rule of non-Roman leaders. But the Eastern Roman Empire continued and became the Byzantine Empire around the year 500 a man called Procopius was born in the Byzantine province of Palestina Prima in the Levant Procopius was already an adult when the Byzantine emperor Justinian took control of the empire Justinian is a highly regarded emperor of the Byzantine Empire, mainly due to his ambitions to restore the glory of the once great Roman Empire. Procopius wrote significant literature about the reign of the Emperor Justinian, which lasted from the year 527 up until 565. So it would be very interesting to see whether Procopius made any reference to a bizarre event in or around the year 536. Procopius mentioned strange weather conditions alongside the stories of Byzantines during 536. Procopius described the strange foggy conditions as a dreadful omen of events that would result in harsh consequences for humankind. Procopius compared the sun's lack of brightness by comparing it to the moon, and mentioned that this was the case for an entire year. This could certainly be the result of a volcanic eruption, and could certainly be referencing a volcanic winter. In 490, a man called Cassiodorus Senator was born in an Italian peninsula that was about to become the possession of the Ostrogoths under the leadership of their greatest leader, King Theodoric the Great. Under the rule of Theodoric, Cassiodorus came of age and established himself as an important member of the Ostrogothic political ranks. He became well known for his meticulous documentation and record-keeping. Cassiodorus may have captured the mood of the people when he also considered the changing atmosphere to be a sign of bad fortune. As it was in Procopius' accounts, the sun was commented on within Cassiodorus' letters as having lost its brightness and having a blue tint. Also noted was the lack of warmth and the lack of shadows. Cassiodorus echoes Procopius's account of this being the case for an entire year Cassiodorus also comments about the nature of the individual seasons being completely different to their usual nature and goes on to explain the impact that it has on agricultural yield these have to be the two most reliable sources from which we can assume a reference to a highly unusual weather event which seems consistent with a volcanic event that would have caused a slowing of tree growth and an excess of sulphate deposits as discovered in the ice cores. The 12th century Syriac Orthodox Christian called Michael the Syrian, a man living in Turkic Anatolian lands, describes in his historical chronicles how there was a darkening of the sun which lasted for a year and a half, and that this would cause crop failures. Writing in the language of Syriac, we can be somewhat certain that Michael was using the contemporary writings of the 6th century Syriac clergyman John of Ephesus, who had described this same event in the same Syriac language so we can see a similar event being described far and wide, from Italy in the west across to Anatolia in the east. By digging deeper, it does appear that there are global reports of bad harvests and inclement weather conditions during this period in history, but we have to be extremely careful not to just assume that they are all interrelated. It's certainly not as if crop failures and bad weather were completely unexpected and very often were nothing to do with dramatic events such as major volcanic eruptions. It is worthwhile stating that sometimes it is not always a case of what was written but also what was not written. The Frankish historian Gregory of Tours wrote a history of the Franks later on in the 6th century but did not mention anything about a period of darkness. Gregory was born after 536 so we could make a couple of suggestions. It's possible that the far west of Europe did not experience the same phenomenon as the lands around the Mediterranean. It is also possible that it wasn't such a big deal and our desire for sensation doesn't want to accept that fact. There are scripts from Edessa and Egypt that also omit this dense fog from their lists of natural weather extremes. In the case of Egypt, it has been suggested that the fog may not have been visible so far south in any case. There is certainly a lot of mystery, suggestion and speculation in regards to all of the evidence. Weather Conditions The one prominent weather result of whatever happened in 536 is the continual mention of a dense fog which certainly hindered the sun's energies from reaching the surface of the planet and it appears that this not only caused disruption to the typical seasonal climates but also to the crop yields and harvest expectations during 536 and 537. It also seems that when comparing the different accounts that different places observed slightly different phenomena. The duration of the fog varies according to different accounts too. We are somewhat fortunate to have Cassiodorus senator's account of events to refer to in that he described the conditions. He refers to a summer without heat and questions how the corn can be expected to grow when the chill of Boreas has affected it. Boreas is a classical world god who controls the north wind. Rainfall was scarce, so Cassiodorus also recognised the fact that crops could not flourish without a good amount of rain. So the dense fog had disrupted all of the natural weather expectations, not just the sun but also rains and storms. Cassiodorus also mentions frost, which can be a killer for some crops. He tells us that these frosts were unusually persistent. Other than that, the agricultural lands were dry and without warmth from the sun. Fortunately, there had been a good harvest the year before the fog, and that abundant crops were able to be stored. However, there was also the moral issue of taking tribute from neighbouring provinces knowing that their harvests had also been somewhat fruitless. Apples became hardened and grapes became sour, meaning that the wine would taste awful, and wine was generally in demand. In regards to writing this episode, I have looked to read original sources such as the translation of Cassiodorus Senators' letters. There are various articles written about this subject such as the highly researched and considerately written account by Antti which I particularly enjoyed referencing due to the balanced overview. Other newspaper style internet articles are available and while they are quite educational they lack clear citation which is a problem for writing such an account myself because such a lot of the research material has been subject to translation and interpretation and that I am conscious that somebody who does have a desire to sensationalise this entire episode in human history will be keen to interpret an innocuous event as categorical evidence. Let's give an example of what I mean by this. Latin chronicles called the Annales Cambriae, were believed to have been originally written during the 10th century in the Welsh lands of the British Isles. They may very well have been written in order to give the Welsh people a bit of cultural identity in the face of the growing influences of the English and the Danish in the southern half of the island of Great Britain. The Annales Cambriae, note two important things about the year 537. Firstly, this is supposed to be the year of the Battle of Camelon, the battle in which the legendary British King Arthur met with his death. Secondly, the annals refer to a great mortality in Britain and Ireland. Now we could get very excited about this and claim that this must also be the result of these extreme weather events especially as it seems that the Annals of Ireland also reference bread failures in this year also. We have to remember that we have no idea whether King Arthur actually existed. There are a great many tales of legend that historians can pick holes in due to the physical unlikelihood of some of the events portrayed within. Fantastic tales of dragons in Viking sagas and Greek gods at the Trojan War are a testament to that. Events of great mortality and crop failures are not necessarily uncommon in the ancient or medieval worlds too so it would be unfair to highlight this one as highly unusual. Having said that, it still does appear that there is a convergence of information from these annals, that there was some form of human disaster in or around the year 537 that may have been related to crop failures. And even though King Arthur is a legendary figure, there is also a significant probability that his story was actually based on a British tribal ruler from this period. So we must be careful not to sway too much in either direction. That is, we must think carefully before embracing something as irrefutable evidence of a global event, as equally as we must think carefully before dismissing it as something that cannot be taken seriously. We must remain well balanced in our judgement. The writings of Snorri Sturluson, the medieval Icelandic statesman and historian, reference something called the finbelvetr which is a particularly harsh winter. While some cite this when discussing the extreme weather events of 536, there is nothing to suggest a relationship other than the fact that it is a reference to a harsh winter. The Finvelvetr was an omen of a somewhat biblically natured great flooding that would serve to cleanse the earth in preparation for the rebirth of life. However, Snorri Studlersen wrote extensively of the history of various Scandinavian cultures and it is quite notable how the science of archaeology has revealed a great abandonment of the majority of the number of villages in parts of the Swedish territories of Scandinavia. So we must not be completely dismissive of the Finbervet being based on a real life event and that the real-life event was not related to these same extreme weather events of 5.36. Possible explanations: The cause of these extreme weather events is unknown, but experts get great pleasure from investigating the possibilities. The events described, such as the dense fog and the sulphate deposits, Seems somewhat typical of the events expected in the aftermath of a major volcanic eruption. However, we also have to be quick to point out that although this is likely, it is not certain. In fact, the cause may have been unearthly. Some scientists have speculated that it could have been caused by a meteorite and even by a near miss by a comet. The most popular theory is that of a volcanic eruption and if that is truly the case then the question would arise regarding exactly where in the world that this volcanic eruption happened. El Salvador is a country in Central America a land which we refer to as Mesoamerica in a historical sense. The country contains an inland body of water called Lake Ilopango which fills a caldera caused by the eruption and subsequent collapse of a volcano, very similar to the caldera at the Greek island of Santorini, whose eruption may have changed the fortunes of the Minoans of Crete during the 2nd millennium BCE. Study of plant material has enabled scientists to consider that the volcano that once sat where Lake Ilopango is today erupted sometime in the 5th or 6th century and that it was one of the most violent eruptions in the age of history. Such a violent eruption could cause a volcanic winter similar to the one described by Procopius and Cassiodorus. However, there is just so little to give us any kind of definitive connection. It seems that scientists generally favour the eruption date to be within the 5th century and it wouldn't make any sense for there to be so much time between the eruption and the dust cloud of 536. More recently, theories regarding an eruption in North America and Iceland have been suggested. The Iceland one particularly interests me because Iceland was believed to be uninhabited during this century and the large-scale abandonment of Scandinavian villages suggests that an Icelandic eruption could be the cause of this due to its close proximity to Scandinavia. But who is not to say that if a North American eruption took place, it could not have had the same impact and consequences on Scandinavia. And that's if a volcanic eruption was responsible for the abandonment in any case, for which there is absolutely no categorical evidence that that is indeed the case. The Late Antique Little Ice Age. As if there were not enough factors and ambiguity surrounding this entire study, we have to consider that scientists believe that there may have been multiple eruptions around this period of history that collectively contributed to a global decrease in temperatures for a sustained period. This period is referred to historically as the late antique Little Ice Age. Most sources will agree that the latest scientific opinion in general is that there were not one, but three volcanic eruptions in succession. The first one being in 536, followed by another in 540, and then another in 547. The planet would not be able to recover from the initial eruption and the subsequent eruption simply magnified the problem. When the Earth's temperature cools thanks to the Sun's energy being unable to penetrate the dust cloud, the ice sheets will naturally grow and the growth of the ice sheets means that more of the Sun's energy will be reflected away from the Earth, meaning that the situation actually feeds itself. The Earth's temperature is speculated to have fallen by between 1 and 2 degrees Celsius, and that was maybe felt more in some places than others. The climate difference may have been experienced for the entire remainder of the 6th century, and some speculate for the first half of the 7th century also. If we consider this theory of the late antique Little Ice Age being the work of three volcanoes, and we could be opening the door to the suggestion that El Salvador, North America, and Iceland were all the locations of volcanic eruptions. But once again, there is no categorical evidence that any of these were the three suspected volcanoes involved. Political consequences It is really quite interesting to see what scientists and historians speculate to have been the consequences of this sequence of events, whether they be volcanic eruptions, meteorite strikes or comet fragments. During our summary of Byzantine history, we spoke of the actions of Emperor Justinian and his trusted military general Belisarius. Belisarius was very active in the year 536 He started the year campaigning against the Ostrogoths in the Italian peninsula attempting to take the Italian lands back into Roman possession. At Easter, Belisarius went to Africa to settle an uprising before returning to Italy at the end of the year. Belisarius took both Naples and Rome quite quickly and then spent the next year or two defending Rome against the Ostrogoths. After this period it appears that there was an outbreak of bubonic plague in Constantinople which is now referred to as the Plague of Justinian. Procopius recorded that the plague first appeared in Egypt in 541 and then spread throughout the lands of the eastern Mediterranean throughout the decade. With there being reports of this plague reaching northern Europe and the Arabian Peninsula it is not inconceivable that the aforementioned abandonment of villages in Scandinavia was actually down to plague reaching this area of the world. So this is the problem with us connecting major events with other major events is that although the pieces of the puzzle seem to fit together, we cannot dismiss theories about the fact that they are not related to each other at all. So although we may want to attribute some of the social events of the Byzantine Empire during the 6th century to a volcanic winter caused by a global drop in temperatures, caused by multiple volcanic eruptions, we could just as easily attribute it to plague. So, now some experts suggest that the outbreak of plague is down to a migration of peoples from the lands of the Eurasian steppe and that the migration was caused by the pressures of poor living conditions as a consequence of a volcanic winter created by the eruption of a volcano in the year 536. So now instead of the plague being a rival theory to the volcanic winter theory, we can actually connect the two events and suggest that one was a consequence of the other and that they effectively put social pressures on the societies of the eastern Mediterranean. Some historians suggest that despite this outbreak of plague in the Byzantine Empire that the Byzantine Empire successfully expanded their territories during the late antique Little Ice Age due to their ability to weather the consequences better than their neighbours. However, the only significant gains by the Byzantines were the Italian Peninsula and the province of Spania in the far south of the Iberian Peninsula. Italian lands were almost worthless by this period due to constant warfare and the Byzantines generally lost their interest in it which enabled the Lombards to expand into them. Further to this, the late antique Little Ice Age has been blamed for the fall of the Sasanian Empire to the Arab Muslims expanding from Arabia. Although this happened in the 7th century, it was still a considerable amount of time after the 540s and after a considerable period of warfare between the Sassanids and the Byzantines. The Arab movement was founded on the establishment of Islam and a desire to expand the religion, which had successfully taken place in the Arabian Peninsula before expanding northwards. The expansion of Islamic societies seemed to have been a cultural desire rather than a consequence of a climatic event due to the fact that they were doing it before they conquered Sasanian Persia and continued to do so after. It is difficult to state with any confidence how much impact the late antique Little Ice Age had on the Sasanian Persians and their ultimate fate. Some historians also suggest that the politics of China were unsettled by the late antique Little Ice Age. And although there could be some truth in this, there was little stability in China in any case, so it is impossible to quantify the impact on Chinese society, especially with a very small amount of evidence to suggest that Chinese societies were even aware of a major climatic event, apart from the suggestion that global temperatures had been affected by a series of volcanic eruptions and the evidence of periods of frost discovered by dendrochronologists. So at the end of this study, we are still very much none the wiser about what really happened during this period. It does seem as though there was some major climatic event, such as a volcanic eruption or a chain of volcanic eruptions that created a thick cloud of dust for a sustained period that likely contributed towards crop failures. Apart from that, everything else that we have talked about is expert theory and until we uncover more evidence, this episode in history will be shrouded in mystery. Thank you very much for listening to this week's mysterious episode about the volcanic winter of the year 536 and uh we've we've stuck it on the end of uh volume 3 which I thought might be a good idea um probably better than slotting it in somewhere because it's sort of a really quite a unique subject and we've got history of the world podcast illuminati member Matt Hayden to thank for the suggestion so it was his original suggestion that this episode be made so thank you very much uh, Matt you you earned that privilege and um, well I hope you found the episode interesting um, it, we didn't really reveal much did we but then also none of us really know what happened so uh, I hope uh, still you got some pleasure from the story and 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 some of the science involved with it, anyway. But uh, thank you very much to Matt Hayden. Of course, if you want to commission your own special episode of the History of the World podcast, just uh, visit the Patreon uh, web pages, and um, if you sign up to make a monthly contribution, you can accrue the the milestone required in order to uh, qualify for the rewards that are offered there. One of which is. The ability to commission your own special episode, a bit like Matt Hayden's uh, done there, um, and um, of course that now we've um, sort of added that to Volume Three, we're actually in the chronology of the series um, halfway through Volume Four uh, on the medieval world. So jumping back into um, the the present um, the present series. Next week, we're going to be taking up the story of Volume Four, but rather conveniently, a couple of our history of the world podcast the Illuminati members have suggested subjects that fitting in very, very nicely into our chronology. so next week, we'll be back on track with volume four episode twenty nine and it will be about medieval communication and it's it's been instigated by History of the World podcast Illuminati member Conrad Barsky, who um, wanted to know a bit about some of the specifics of medieval communication. Well, I thought it may be prudent to investigate the entire, um, the entire uh, um, subject of medieval communication as a whole and... Um, it was really with a view to answering Conrad's questions, some of which are quite difficult to answer. But uh, with, a, with a little bit of education, we can take educated guesses as to what those answers may be. But that will be next week's episode for History of the World podcast Illuminati member Conrad Barsky. The Ancient World Cup. The Ancient World Cup is a competition, a bit of a fun competition that we've got going on the History of the World podcast at the moment. We took 64 ancient teams and by a system of voting uh, made via the History of the World podcast social media platforms by you guys, Um, we are eliminating teams until we get down to the latter stages where we should have fewer and fewer teams before ultimately we should have a grand final between two of those teams. Now, this week, uh, just gone, um, we had a knockout match between the Parthians and the Berbers. Now, the Parthians, of course, were were the Persian... Uh, were the occupiers of the Persian lands um during probably the the heyday of the Roman Empire just to give you a bit of context so um certainly the Parthians were responsible um for resisting um, the Roman Empire uh, the the Roman Empire um before they were ultimately um, overthrown by the sasanians um sometime afterwards. Um, The other culture, the Berbers, who were very much involved uh, politically in uh, North African politics, which was often um, certainly the Maghreb, more more predominantly than Egypt and Libya. But they were certainly very much involved in the politics of North Africa, which was dominated by other cultures, such as the Phoenicians, the Carthaginians. Um, who came and the vandal cultures um much later on and the berbers were always very much involved and um quite revered for their um for their ability in like to uh, form uh, military uh, groups or or um mercenary groups i should say uh, for for other battlers of of, of north africa um, so, voting took place, we we went on the Facebook group, the Tapper Talk Discussion Forum, the unofficial Facebook um, fan group, which uh, is run by Jenna Osborne, a good friend of the History of the World podcast, uh, Twitter, and uh, also, for the first time, we ran it on Instagram this week, um, and um, rather bizarrely enough, Instagram... Um, voted, Instagram um, subscribers voted the opposite direction to all the other, um, all the other forums. So uh, that's the first time we've done that. We certainly look to carry that on in future weeks. So thank you to everyone who did vote on Instagram. Um, Now let's find out the result between the Parthians and the Berbers. Um, there were 55 votes and the winners, with 64% of the votes and going through to the next stage of the competition, are the Parthians. So, sadly, we've got to say goodbye to the Berbers. Um, um, So we we say goodbye to another African culture. Uh, But the Parthians will progress. Now, next week, um, two more teams will be... Going up against one another, and and what a what a match we've got really. How do you pick between these? So the first ones are the tier two who were the um, who were the dominant culture of um, Mesoamerica. Uh, I would say during the earliest part of the first millennium, and um, they um, they governed themselves really out of the city of Teotihuacan. Teotihuacan uh for which they are named after so predominantly this culture is known uh for existing within the city of Teotihuacan building those incredible pyramids uh, the likes of which we we're, we're probably used to see more familiarly, familiarly with uh countries like Egypt and um also um, they were you know it's very pro- close proximity to the modern city of Mexico City but they were they were dominant over the trade cultures of uh, Mesoamerica during their heyday. Um, they're playing against the Anglo-Saxons who were the uh, the migrants after the uh, the uh, Roman occupation of Britain ended the Romans left and and left this hybrid Romano uh, Britain culture, Romano-British culture, um, that were squeezed into the um, extremities of the British Isles by these migrating Germanic tribes, which came to be known as the Anglo-Saxons and of course have got a a very interesting history, not least of all among the stories of the Vikings and the Normans, who eventually displaced the Anglo-Saxon kings as the rulers of England. Uh, so that's next week. Uh, all you have to do is uh, go to the Facebook page, to the unofficial Facebook fan group, to the Tapper Talk discussion forum, Twitter, Instagram. Um, if you're not sure where to find them, just go to the History historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and click on the Interact link and you'll be able to access all those forums. So uh, voting will start on Monday. So make sure you get involved. Listener messages and reviews. So, listener messages and reviews. Let's see who wrote into the podcast this week. Russell Noland is an, a friend of the podcast He often writes in. He's written, I'm sure the reading I've done on this subject is meagre in comparison to the research you did, but I want to touch on, upon something in particular. Homosexuality as we know it and define it in modernity was not understood in the same way in many ancient cultures. Pederasty, to the best of my reading, was generally, if not predominantly or exclusively, an older, younger, dominant, submissive submissive dynamic, with the younger of the coupling expected to later go on and marry and father children. It was a mentorship in many ways, albeit a slightly bizarre one. Um, And uh, this is from Russell Noland, who's put, I would appreciate any insights you have on this matter. Um, Yeah, interesting subject, isn't it, Russ? This pederasty. And um, I always think of the Spartans when I think about pederasty um, and how they almost forcibly made um, their their infantry or their soldiers couple off into this older younger uh, male uh, relationship where they were encouraged to uh, have a, a loving bond with each other and of course yes the the, well, the other thing was that this this whole um isolating men from their wives as well so marriage was um was known to take place obviously with a view to producing the best offspring and so they used to just um have very tight controls over over how soldiers met with their wives so that they would be um sort of extremely um let's say you know for want of a better phrase extremely hot for sex when they got back with their wives and were in the mood for procreating at quite a um quite a successful rate uh, for the next generation of soldiers to be uh, inducted, so yeah, certainly uh, sexual practices were uh, somewhat controlled within um, Spartan societies and probably in other ancient Greek societies as well. This seems to be a bit of an ancient Greek thing, but I think pederasty was probably encouraged in other areas of the world as well. And I'm like, it's been such a long time since I've read about it that I'm I'm struggling to think of exactly where, but um yeah, probably it could it could even be you know, a whole podcast episode you could probably devote to the subject of pedrasty in ancient Greek society. They're very interesting, Russell Nolan, thank you very much indeed. Um, Randy Abood um, has um, written in saying, sorry to bother you, but I have an Italian friend or um, reporter for an Italian newspaper lit- living in New York City who's been doing research on the Etruscans, there were several episodes in which you mentioned the Etruscans, but I've had trouble locating the exact episodes, would you mind outlining those episodes for me to review again, of course. um, We did touch upon the Etruscans during Volume 2, obviously when talking about the uh, the trading networks of the Mediterranean, particularly uh, the Phoenicians who in turn uh, became the Carthaginians around this sort of period when the Etruscans were known to be um, occupants of the lands that the Romans would come to occupy. So so the city of Rome was really founded on the, on the sort of southern fringes of Etruscan territory. So for that reason, uh, to hear more about the Etruscans, we didn't write an episode on the Etruscans, but they were certainly mentioned quite a lot in the earliest uh, episodes about the Roman Republic. So from around, um, in volume three from around, uh episode twenty five through to episode thirty four we see we see the etruscans repeatedly mentioned but uh thanks randy that's uh you know randy's a, a friend of the podcast of course as well um uh Vib- vibiki moore um has written in uh, because uh vibiki is qualified for um uh, a subject of his own choice on the podcast, as we were speaking about earlier, and and uh he he's expressed an interest mainly because of the current situation in Ukraine about the Yamnaya culture, which is strongly linked to many aspects of the history of the world podcast and and uh considered to be um strong candidates for the um for the speakers of the Proto-Indo-European language and uh, with their step culture um, quite influential in the domestication of the horse um, and potentially the invention of the wagon. So like, they, I think that would be an excellent subject matter for a future special episode. So thank you, for, uh, for Becky. Um Oliver Brown has written in um, and has written... Uh, Hi, Chris only just finished the Megalith Part 2 episode, so I'm quite far behind, but love your work and have only helped my passion on history grow even more. Please keep up the good work. I'm very excited to see you cover periods such as the Roman period, Medieval Europe and early and late modern periods. Well, I'm still a long way from the modern periods, but certainly, yes, we're in the thick of Medieval Europe and we've told the entire story of Rome, so... Uh, thank you very much oliver and i hope you continue to enjoy the podcast um i think that may be all for um listener review, listener messages um we may have reviews let me check last time i checked i don't think we had anything new but uh let me just take a, a look uh no nothing new so uh let's uh let's move on so if you want more History of the World podcast and you want to uh, listen to a little bit more about the, uh, the background behind the episode that you listened to today, um, simply go to the Patreon page, uh, sign up, become a History of the World podcast Illuminati member. Uh, we do have um, a new member to, uh, to welcome into the History of the World podcast Illuminati, uh, and it's B. Roberts, who uh, now is a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Welcome, and thank you for your uh, for your support of the podcast. Um, but um, I mentioned Patreon because those of you who have signed up for for uh, Patreon to sort of subs- uh, to to make a, a don- donation a monthly donation to the podcast can access um the history of the world podcast debriefs which are a short um short episode about the sources used for the episode uh, that we just published the one that you listen to here so um so i encourage you to take a look at that um Next week, as I say, back to volume four after a long period off, uh, episode 29 will be about medieval communication. So that will be, well, I say it every week, don't I? That will be an interesting episode, but it it truly is an interesting episode and a lot of uh, sort of speculation um, based on study, really. So uh, if you like that sort of thing, you'll love next week's episode. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And uh, we'll be back next week. And until then, be good. The History of the World Podcast. Written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time.